The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Mary DeMuth. Mary has authored countless books, including Jesus Every Day, The Wall Around Your Heart, Thin Places, and the recently released We Too. Mary is also a podcaster and a speaker. Mary, thank you for joining the conversation. So great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, before we get to our conversation on the new book, let's talk about your story. Um, You were a church starter in France. So first of all, as a fellow church starter, I need to say (laughs) that you're just an amazing person because you started a church. Um, The second thing is, how does an American end up starting a church in France? That's a terrific question, and I'm not quite sure, but actually, um, my husband went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and while he was there, this is in the early 2000s, um, he also got a lot of husband points by taking me on a 10-year wedding anniversary trip to Paris, and while we were there, we were trying to find a church, and it was just really hard at that time, right around 2000, 2001, and and so we, it just kind of stayed in our mind and we had always 
thought about those verses about going to the places Christ is not yet named. And we've always, the DNA of our relationship has always been missions. And so as he began to look around the Dallas-Fort Worth area and seeing 10,000 billion churches on every corner, uh, we decided to go to the place where it was really hard. And and we did get chewed up and spit out, but we did go there to plant a church among the marginalized in southern France. And the work um, has shifted a little bit from what we started, but it still has the same DNA and is still going on today. What part of southern France were you all in? We were suffering for Jesus on the Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds sounds miserable. <laughs> the food was terrible, and yeah. you know the sunshine, all that stuff. Yeah, of course. There's and there's no culture in that area either. Uh, you know, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Well, that's going to be somewhat of a you know of a of a shift in culture to go from uh, you know Texas to France. I mean, I, I would not say when you when you're looking at cultural comparisons, they usually don't fit in the same terminology. It was interesting because we're actually from the Seattle area, and so moving to Texas was a cross-cultural experience for us, and moving from Texas to France was pretty shocking, especially in the spiritual climate, but France felt a lot more like the Pacific Northwest to us, and so it was a little bit easier, oddly. Oh, the the culture of the Pacific Northwest is, um, is remarkable. Every time I travel there, I always say to my wife, this is why people come to visit here and then never move back home. It's just an amazing, <laughs> amazing place uh, to visit. Yep. Um, now, you know, as far as um, what were some of the, the valuable lessons you learned from church starting? Yeah, I think um, first is not to underestimate the spiritual warfare that you're going to encounter. I think that's like um, on the front edge or the cutting edge of pioneering work is, is puts you in this place of having a target on your, on your family. And, and so we knew that going in, but we did, we underestimated the amount of spiritual warfare and attack that we would receive. And so that was, um, that was difficult. I think we learned to just the importance of cultural sensitivity, obviously, and um, loving the culture in which you're in and also the lesson I think I keep learning over and over again is the kingdom's not what you expect. And what I mean by that is that like, even when we were raising support, it wasn't the people we expected to support us that supported us. And it wasn't the people who were, that we thought would be open to the gospel that were, it was the ones we didn't think. And so you have to kind of have this Holy Spirit driven paradoxical mindset that he may just surprise you every single day. You know, the, the fascinating thing about Europe is they often say that American um, kind of cultural expectations and shifts are typically five to 10 years behind where Europe is. And Europe certainly led the way in the last decade or two of, of you know, what many theologians have called a post-church uh, uh, or post-Christendom yeah. um, era. And so, uh, you know, I wonder, as you were starting a church and quote, a, you know, post-church uh, world, you know, what was it like doing ministry there? Um, how how did you know what you learned there help, help come back to? I guess technically Texas could be part of the the Bible Belt, but uh, change the way mm -hmm. you approach ministry here. Yeah, again, um, we experienced that, that same shocking culture shift coming back to Texas into the buckle of the Bible Belt, so to speak, and uh, it was very strange to have people talking about the Lord publicly. I just wasn't used to that after a couple of years in France. But 
I would say yes. I would affirm what you're saying that as Europe goes, so does the U.S. about 10 years behind. And what, the one thing that I thought was encouraging, just so I'm not a Debbie Downer about the whole thing, is that actually people in this post-Christian, post-church era are hyper-spiritual. They're looking for answers. And so we were finding a lot of people searching for spiritual things in the occult in particular, and um, in, you know, in the place where we lived was fairly wealthy, um, I mean, just the area that we lived in. And so people were finding it, of course, in those typical American things of wealth and fame and power and all those kind of things. But, um, but we, when we were able to have conversations with people, we could find a point of connection um, at that place of spiritual hunger and yeah, you're talking about the evangelism scale at negative 4,000. <laughs> so uh, we're bringing them from like negative 4,000 to negative 3,800. Um, typically, the evangelism scale is negative 10 to positive 10. And so this is the kind of work that you have to do when you're in a post-Christian culture. Well, I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, people are um, not religious, but they are seeking, I mean, uh, greater spirituality. They're actually, you know, studies have found that people are actually more spiritual now than ever before. It's just they're not seeking it in traditional institutions. Um, and certainly, you know, the culture of Europe is very much a, a community-driven culture, which is fascinating for us in the U.S. because as people are uh, continually moving away from their home base. They're seeking to find authentic community in, in new places. And I think the church, if it has genuine and authentic community, it, it has an amazing resource uh, that isn't mm. wrapped in a program or an event, but wrapped in the day-to-day living among people. Um, so I, I think the time is ripe for church starts and house churches and churches to rethink the way that they're approaching. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily come in the the metrics of success that we're used to. Um, you've written uh, a lot. I mean, you've churned out countless books um, on the, such a, an array of topics so from daily spiritual formation to friendships and motherhood and sexual abuse. Where do you, where do you find your drive to write so much? <laughs> um, I have... I've, from a very long time ago, I've known that I'm a writer. And so my passion is to put into words what people struggle with, but maybe don't have the vocabulary to quite put it that way. Um, I love to put those words on the page so that people don't feel alone anymore. And so that kind of reflects the wide variety of things I've written. If I was going to categorize them, I would say mostly this is all about healing and spiritual growth. And as a novel, I'm also a novelist. So as a novelist, that's exactly what I'm writing about. I'm writing about authenticity and genuine relationship with Jesus. And when you peel back the layers of all the nonfiction that I've written, it's all about how can you connect to Jesus and how can you grow? And really also a little bit of a exegesis of the American church culture, because I've had that advantage of going overseas and coming back. I can kind of have a prophetic distance and see some of the flaws that others who are enmeshed in it may not be able to see. Personally, my favorite book title you have is The Seven Deadly Friendships, How to Heal When Painful <laughs> Relationships Eat Away at Your Joy. You know, some books you're not sure what they're about. That one is resolutely clear on, on what's about. You know, sitting down and, and writing is one thing. Having people actually read and interact with your writing is something <laughs> else altogether. So when your blog and your books started taking off, what was your reaction? 
Well, I, I bring it back actually to my first major writers conference, which was in 2004. And I was writing in obscurity for about 15 years where I wasn't published. And I had like a handful of things in like um, magazines published, but nothing major. And I had my, um, my proposal there at the conference and a couple of editors and agents all were jumping on it. And that was the first time that I thought, maybe I'm up to something here. And maybe all of this hard work, those 10,000 Malcolm Gladwell hours of becoming a genius, so to speak, and by hard work was paying off because um, at that point I realized I was on something. And then when I, of course, had my first books come out and getting that reader feedback, it was excessively heartening and really encouraging. Well, the good news is if you were writing for years and nobody was actually reading it, you've got a pool of resources that you can always reboot into something new. It's true. And it's part of the journey of, of just being faithful in those little things, writing, you know, miles and miles of unpublished words. I think that's not very popular in today's instant publishing culture. And I'm grateful, actually, that there were no blogs in the olden days when I was first starting because... I wasn't ready for prime time, and I really needed to apprentice my craft until it was appropriately ready. Well, your latest book is—it's uh, a challenging one. Uh, the new book is mm. "We Too: How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to Sexual Abuse Crisis." Uh, this is a challenging book for the church to rethink how it has responded to sexual assault victims. And you wrote, "I fear that the church has so traumatized survivors." by unfeeling, uh, caustic, and disbelieving responses, that it's no wonder there is not an, only a, an under-interest and uninterest of, in our services, but a default uh, to hiss, claw, and to bite. Uh, these are some strong words. Walk us, walk us through the formation of this book and the approach uh, to, to kind of write this directly to churches. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit about prophetic distance, I have a sexual abuse story as a five-year-old, a year-long um, sexual abuse experience with a couple neighborhood teenagers. And so I have a lot of distance and a lot of healing that's come as a result of all of that. And after meeting Jesus at 15, and I also had the experience of when I did begin sharing my story, I was actually really met with great folks in the church who loved me and prayed for me. And the lion's share of my healing happened in those small, quiet spaces. And so in writing this book, it's not something like, oh, I just want to yell at the church for not doing enough because my own story mitigates against that. But um, as a survivor and as one who's been speaking about this issue since the 90s, um, I've I've received a lot of stories over the years. And um, and I've seen some parts of the church be more interested in, in, particularly if the abuse happened within the church, more interested in protecting reputation than, um, than really ministering to the heart of those who are broken and bruised. And as I look at Jesus Christ and I look at how he ministered to people along the highways and byways of life, he's almost always exclusively attracted to those who are marginalized and broken. And so when I saw this happening in the church that I love, I felt compelled to shine a little bit of a spotlight on that reality. 
You went on to write, the pathway forward is not easy because it involves truth, the kind of truth that cuts through the darkness and exposes hidden motivations of people's hearts. It involves admitting systematic failure, religious pride, and in some cases, denominational refusal to see what is right in front of them. What's the most challenging thing for churches and denominations to change right now? You know, the thing I keep going back to is Nehemiah's corporate repentance for the nation of Israel. And he uh, he repented on behalf of a nation whose sins were not his own. And I think we need a structure of lament and repentance um, in all different churches and church structures of, of being willing to be humble enough to say, we have not done this well. We have not listened. We have not done the proper thing like reporting to authorities. And I think revival comes on the heels of that kind of authentic confession, even by people who haven't done the wrong. Now we could, you know, spend time talking about the actual wrongs that need to be apologized for as well. Um, And that's absolutely vital and important for a church to um, unstick itself from sin and being entrenched in a pattern of sin. But I also think there needs to be strong leaders who are willing just to say, hey, we blew it and we repent. And I think that's the beginning of being able to have these circles of stories and um, the kind of empathetic listening that we all need and we all need to learn. Well, in the Me Too world, it's hard um, to see uh, the, the blaring atrocities within scripture. I mean, you think about Lot's daughters, David and Bathsheba, Tamar and Amnon, uh, just as starters. And we really shouldn't get started on the alienation of uh, rape victims from the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, Scripture has mm-hmm. some challenging words and stories oftentimes associated with, you know, quote, heroes of the Bible. And most churches want to stay away from these texts, especially when they show up in the lectionary reading of the week. Um we have, a, we have an obligation to to help our congregation navigate these difficult scriptures. So, so what are the ways that you can see ministers creating theological dialogue around the biblical examples of sexual assault? I really appreciate that question, and that's a question that pastors are asking me in these you know quiet conversations. And the first thing I'll say is a little bit unrelated, but it's to to um, have survivor stories from the pulpit. And I don't know what that necessarily needs to look like. And I know they need to probably be vetted. Um, but I, I can't tell you how little I've ever heard that in the many, many decades of being in the church. The only time I've heard someone share a story is when it comes out of my own mouth from the front of a church. And so we need to kind of normalize it so people know that um, that this is something we're not going to avoid talking about. In in reference to the scriptures that you brought up, um, the other thing that I say to pastors is preach the word. And those problematic texts are difficult, but oftentimes they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. And so if you have a robust theology and a a strong underpinning of biblical theology, you'll understand that, that that these stories, especially if you look at them in the context of the whole story and narrative of scripture— you'll see that after these sexual, violent sexual acts, there's um, almost always an act of war afterwards. This is, this is violence. And I think we forget that when we look at Noah and the flood, 
we see that the reason for the flood was that humanity was getting excessively violent. Now, here's something we don't talk about ever. Um, we're, we have very violent shows on TV and no one ever talks about it. But I would argue that if there was violence in the pre-flood era, that that violence also included sexual violence. And so um, when there is a story of, of rape and incest and some of those awful things that happen, um, there is, uh, it's not that God's saying this is good and it should happen because it's in the Bible. He's saying, look at the aftermath of what happened after these violent acts and it's never good. And so it's actually a very strong cautionary tale against sexual violence. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Now, um, you know, CBF uh, was founded. Um, one of the founding values was around endorsing women in, in ministry. And for many of us, that's that's just a, a given that um, that's what our churches value and seek. Um, yet, for many, there's still, um, I would say, a, a natural patriarchal um, feel to to congregations. And one could make the argument that this hyper-masculine culture uh, and leadership could often lead to um, unhealthy uh, systems, uh, maybe even misogynistic systems. So now in this era of, um, of awareness and open communication or improving open communication, how might the church uh, maybe be the leaders in, in removing such a masculine uh, culture within its leadership? Yeah, I think that's a terrific question. And I affirm that because if, if you only have 50% of your population represented in the pulpit, um, and never any voice of a woman ever, um, all the metaphors are going to be masculine for the most part. All of the stories are going to be there. And you couple that with the fact that, sadly, many men who experience sexual abuse are reticent to talk about it publicly. And so part of the change could just simply be the uh, male pastors in the pulpit who have experienced abuse to be authentic and open about it. Um, again, just to bring the normalization of it, not to say that it's normal to happen because it's violent and evil, but just to let other people know that we're all human beings. We've all struggled with some sort of predation in, at some point in our lives, and we're all in this together. Um, and then I would say in terms of women to um, to just value their voices. And one of the things that really heartened me throughout all of this process is that I, I go to a, you know, a, a Southern Baptist church in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area and gigantic church. And, um, they, the elder board made a decision to read we too, and to have several weeks of discussion on it. 
and I can't tell you what that did to my soul. <laughs> it was like a happy birthday present to my soul because I felt like, okay, someone is listening to um, another person's voice and a, and a woman's voice as well. So that was really a blessing to me. Oftentimes I think it, it can be so hard um, and not to, um, for lack of better terms, to poo-poo somebody else's uh, interpretation of scripture around whether male or female or both leadership within the church. But it, it, I wonder if it can be difficult for some congregations to begin to approach this um, when it is such a masculine-driven leadership culture within some denominational traditions. You know, so uh, you look to scripture, you have these sometimes difficult examples, you know, within people like David, um, you, you see it in the pulpit. And, and I wonder if this is an opportunity for denominations and for some churches to reevaluate, um, you know, how they are interpreting um, God's call and leadership. But maybe that's another conversation for, for another time. Uh, you wrote some fascinating... Well, I think uh, that Oh, I just think there's some interesting stuff we can talk about that. Uh, we see it recently with a, um, an article about kind of rethinking divorce and, re and uh, in the aftermath of abuse. And so I think that's an example of a conversation that we can look at the nuance of Scripture and have intelligent conversation about um, based on, you know, scholarship and also, you know, intuition and research and and all of that. And now I'm the first to say that I just absolutely adore the Bible. I have a, a, a podcast where I pray every day through the Bible for people. I'm constantly reading it and sharing it. And so I have a high view of scripture, but I do think that in our, um, when we, when we make everything really black and white and we set up straw men and we make the person with the opposite opinion of us as evil, then we're not going to resolve some of these issues. And I also would say that whether there's a high patriarchal structure or not, it doesn't, there's still abuse going on in both structures. So we, everybody has to look at themselves and their structures and see why has this flourished. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think it's, um, it's easy to alienate those that aren't in the same theological place. I think, you know, one of the things that I look to is, um, you know, the church oftentimes is reflectant of other um, cultural patterns of leadership within the world. So like, for example, like Hollywood right now, you know, um, it's facing a, a crisis in the last two years because it's recognizing that the hyper masculinity of, of leadership within, you know, that, institutional structure is beginning to crumble because it, it, it promoted within people almost a sense of right of givenness that you can do whatever you want to do because you're in this role. Mm. And so it's, it's a challenging time. And that's why I appreciate so much that you've written this, this book. Um, you, you went on to write, um, but so often when it comes to sexual offense, the abuser is protected by the church and shuffled away while the hard work of forgiving is demanded of the survivor, seldom do we see the church deal honestly with the crime of sexual abuse from the pulpit. Similarly, we rarely see the church hand over a church-employed perpetrator to proper authorities. We prefer darkness, reputation, and money to light, God's fame, and trusting him to provide for us when we dare to tell the truth. Um, those are powerful words. So I wonder... What are the best practices that churches can institute for for listening to victims? 
Yeah, there's a multifaceted approach and pretty, you know, pretty, there's a lot there. But I would say first that there should probably be some sort of child protection committee within each church structure of how they're going to take care of their children, first of all. Um, And also what the other thing that I think is really important is to have a policy and procedure in place that is neutral and like a a super neutral checklist that has nothing to do with emotion or relationship. And so therefore the checklist might say something like, if we have a credible abuse, even if it's not credible, if we have an allegation of abuse, the first thing that we do is we call either the child advocacy center or the police. And, um, and then checkpoint number two is this and checkpoint number three is this, because what happens is, Churches don't have their checklist in place, and so they err on the side of relationship or investigation when they're not equipped to investigate particularly a child's claim, but um, in any claim. And so having that um, checklist include in independent investigation or reporting to the authorities is absolutely essential. Well, as you've written also, the church has not had the best practices when it comes to handling perpetrators. So what are some of the best practices that churches can institute in in handling perpetrators? First of all, if someone is on the sex registry, sex offender registry, or is um, known as a pedophile, they do not need to be around children. And I've gotten flack for this, particularly, interestingly enough, on Twitter by pedophiles, (laughs) who think that they should have full inclusion in the life of the church. And thankfully, we live in an era now of online church and uh, so that people who have that predatory mindset can still receive teaching without having to be in a place where they are constantly tempted to re-perpetrate. Um, and so obviously, every church has to come up with its own idea of that. I know that smacks in the face of redemption of, well, don't you believe that God can redeem anyone? I absolutely believe that God can redeem anyone. But I also know that if I was an alcoholic, constantly struggling with alcohol, I would not keep going to a bar, nor would I insist that the bar the bartender allow me to come in if I've already known that I shouldn't be in there. And so this is this is just one of the things that we can do to kind of protect our churches from offenders. Well, oftentimes when we think about abuse, at least um, not you know, before the last kind of decade here we've seen in this uh, Me Too era, we've, we've thought about primarily child abuse, but really the stories coming to light across many denominations and church traditions is... Um, the the sexual assault that's coming from you know adults to adults. So yeah. can you take us a little deeper into you know um, while check uh, while child uh, sexual assault uh, or sexual assault on a child is important for us to talk about how to also as we think about um, you know for for adults and the practices to put in place there. Typically in these kinds of situations, it is a church leader to a congregant and. Why this happens is because, um, and not 100% of the time, but a lot of times, and just what I've observed, is that church leader has become insulated from other people, and they have surrounded themselves by yes folks who will not call them on small small things, you know, like 
that was a flirtatious thing that you just said, or you seem to be spending a lot of time with that person or whatever. And so if you surround yourself by people that will only tell you things you want to hear, uh, you can keep going down the slippery slope of predation. And we have to talk about that abuse of power, because if you are in a pastoral situation and you are supposedly having an affair with a congregant because of your position as a pastor, it's, it is abuse because it is an abuse of power. I think the pulpit has been so isolated lately, and we've lost what oikos is or the community of Christ, that, and we have elevated pastors so much and, and had all these impossible um, expectations of them that I think they feel like there's no one that they can turn to. But my encouragement is that we've got to get back to the first century church, which involves just people hanging out, loving each other, breaking bread together, and being just honest about their brokenness. And maybe that means tearing down some of our American structures of what church should be, which looks a lot like business and success um, that we have measured that way. So maybe it looks something different, and maybe God is tearing down some of those man-made structures we've created through this issue to show us that maybe that's not exactly what the church is all about. What is the responsibility of uh, denominational entities when it comes to sexual assault? I think going back to that Nehemiah repentance, it is to uncover what you can possibly uncover, uh, try to do the right thing now, apologize individually for what has happened, and also apologize and repent corporately. I know that SBC last summer and also at the Caring Well Conference did a corporate lament. I think that's a good start, but there's also there also has to be individual repentance for those who have been harmed. As you think about uh, this, uh, this amazing resource that you've written, how do you see this um, being used as a practical tool for local congregations? What are some concrete action steps to raise awareness and change within the culture of a church? Uh, yeah, I think part of that is, is allowing those, those redemptive survivor voices, people who have gone through the line, you know, all this healing. And I think they're actually not a detriment to the church, which I think the church has been pushing them away because they're afraid of them. They're actually an asset to the church. And so if we can um, invite people like that uh, to have conversations with our leadership, just to help us to become more empathetic to people who are struggling in our congregations, I think we'll begin to see some revival break out because I think revival comes on the heels of truth like that. Um, again, policies and procedures, and then also um, really understanding that I know that not every church can have a counseling center, not every church can, you know, have, uh, you know, every resource in place. I have created a, we, a, a resource on we2.org slash pastors. It's like 31 pages of resources. And so there are ways churches can res resource themselves from that in particular, they can have Stevens ministers, they can um, have uh, connections with counseling centers in their communities, and they can become trauma-informed. I think most church leaders are not informed about trauma and its devastating effects. And so having that kind of knowledge and training is really helpful. What kind of response are you getting from victims of sexual abuse who are reading your book? 
Yeah, that was surprising to me because I wrote the book for the church, um, but abuse victims have been, uh, I'm, I'm grateful, but they've been grateful. And because it's given word to the thing that we haven't been talking about very much or very often, and we're finally doing it now, but it's, it was my gift to people who maybe needed that articulated and gave them a tool to hand to other people in their congregation or leaders to help them understand, this is where I'm coming from. This is the injury. This is why it's so hard. This is what has made me leave church because I'm panicked. This is, you know, this is why. And so that's my hope in writing the book is that not only would it give a voice to the survivors, but it would give um, a platform of conversation and empathy for those who may not have that story, but are compassionate and want to help people who are suffering. What kind of response are you getting from clergy readers? You know, that has been amazing to me. And I had an opportunity to speak to a couple different groups of pastors over the past couple months. And I have only had positive response. Every single person that I have interacted with has been, it's just been really encouraging to see that people are talking about this. And I really want to praise the next generation, the millennials and the Gen Zs, um, the leaders, the young leaders. They get this. I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. There's no bending over backwards or verbal, you know, um, wrangling that I need to do to try to convince them. They know this issue and they want um, passionately to do something about it. And so I think that they're an amazing hope for the church and gives me a lot of hope for the future. Now, uh, a companion to the book um, is a website that you have as a resource for victims and churches. It's uh, we2.com. Tell us more about it. Yeah, it's actually we2.org. And it is a site that has all sorts of resources for anybody on any end of that uh, issue. If you're a survivor, you can go to we2.org slash 21 days and receive 21 days of emails that highlight the best practices I've learned over the years in healing. My caveat to that is I'm still healing. I'm not fully healed. I will not be until the other side of heaven and new heavens, new earth. But I have learned a few things in the journey. So that's that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we we2.org slash pastors get a free PDF that has clickable links of 30 pages of resources that are vetted by me, um, all that are also international for people wanting to find help for people in the congregations. And just a reminder for our, our CBF listeners, you can also visit cbf.net backslash safe church for resources that came out of, mm-hmm. um, we had an initiative called CBF Sexual Misconduct Task Force that was led by uh, Dr. Pam Durso and Stephen Reeves. And there are countless articles and videos and policy guides and many other resources um, that um, go wonderfully with uh, this wonderful resource you've also created in, in we2.org. Um, if you want to stay connected with Mary, you can visit her website, marydemuth.com. Uh, of course, follow her on Twitter and Facebook and go out and purchase We2 wherever books are sold. Mary, this is an amazing resource. Um, thank you for your courage to write it, um, but above all for your willingness to share your difficult story to help transform the way the church deals with sexual assault. I so appreciate that. It's really encouraging and I affirm what you guys are doing and I'm so grateful for all the work that you're doing to help others. Thank you very, very much. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. 
Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in.